Hi friends, it's Susan Blackwell from The Spark File, your one-stop shop for creativity where our doors are open. And if you smell something delicious, that's because Laura Camion and I have been cooking up something special, something designed to make a big difference in people's creative lives. Enter The Brave Creative, a free five-day guided adventure to rediscover the vitality energy, and possibility in your creative process. Whether you're a writer, a performer, a baker, a candlestick maker, navigating the creative process can be a bear. But never fear, there's power in numbers at the Spark File. So let's link arms and make the trip together. It's May 13th through 17th, 7 p.m. Eastern, less than one hour per day. And if you can't join live, don't worry about it. You can watch the replay. Join us by going to thesparkfile.com to register. And hey, if you're not familiar with The Spark File, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Secondly, we work with hundreds of creatives of all different kinds who are ready to take their next big step. We help folks fear less and create more in a community that is so fun and vibrant. And if you have joined us before, know that we are going deep with the Brave Creative. So buckle up, Buttercup. It is going to be an awesome adventure. Go to thesparkfile.com to register, but do it soon because it all starts May 13th. Thesparkfile.com. Register now. The Sparkfile podcast may contain profanity and other adult content. Please use your discretion. When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my sparkfile. To be something that I wanna make or how I wanna be, I pump it in my sparkfile. I jump into my sparkfile. Let's open up the Welcome to the Spark File, where we believe that everyone is creative, but smart creative people don't go it alone. I'm Laura Camion. And I'm Susan Blackwell. If you're an OG listener, well, 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 welcome back, Sparkler. If you're joining us for the first time, know that all are welcome here. Whether you have put your creativity on pause during this time, or you've clung to it like a lifeline, either way, Welcome. But you may be asking yourself, what exactly is a Spark file? Where do I get one? What do I file in it? These are such good questions, and we actually do have answers. Mm-hmm. A Spark file is a place where you consistently collect all your inspirations and fascinations. Here's the deal. We are makers who make all kinds of things. If you're like us and you're making stuff all the time or you want to be making stuff all the time, you know the wellspring of inspiration can run a little dry especially now. But don't despair because we're here for you and we are on the lookout for fresh ideas, images, and inspiration that spark our creativity and pique our curiosity. Things that inspire us to get up off of our asses and make things like this podcast. Or a work of art inspired by real life drama, greed, power, and betrayal. Uh, what? What? <sighs> yes. Or an approach to telling your story that doesn't make your family disown you. Mm, nice. Every episode, we're going to reach into the spark file and exchange some sparks. And from time to time, we're going to talk to some folks who spark us too. 
And if you're not careful, you might just spill more tea than you ever thought possible. Ooh. So without further ado, let's open up the, the Spark Biofile. It's always this moment, Camion, when I realize (laughs) I have neglected to think about if there's anything, any (gasps) order of business to talk about at the top, any updates. I had something. I had something for reals. I wrote it down. Where, though, is the question? Where is the question? Where did I write it down? (laughs) Shit. We are off to an auspicious start, friends. (laughs) (laughs) So glad you joined us. Um, Should we just dive in then? Yeah, I think you're going first. I think I am going first. Um, Cam's, this has been a spark that I have been brewing for a while, but I decided to go ahead and lean into it because it has come up so much for us lately and for our listeners and for our clients. I just kept hearing the reverberations of this coming up and... I was like, oh, this is a spark whose time has come. Yes. Some of the things that I'm going to share, we've discussed before, you've heard before, but I do think it bears a deeper dive. And I love the idea of having it all together in one place. And we can always, I think it's one of those conversations. Once we have it, we're going to add to it. We're going to return to it. Oh, yeah. So, but here's- Maybe spark back at you at some point. Potentially, potentially. Okay. Okay. So, here goes. Um We have a lot of people in our world, including ourselves, who have a desire to spin their lived experience into their creative self-expression, which makes it, it makes so much sense to us. Uh, we've done ourselves, we've done so many things, made so many things out of our lived experience, the musicals title of show. And now hear this, your play, Laura, Mm -hmm. Electra speaks talks and films and curriculum and stories and podcast episodes. Our lived experience shows up in all sorts of places. And sometimes it's absolutely direct, like it is absolute direct Mm -hmm. storytelling. And sometimes it's details that pepper in other things. (laughs) So it's an ingredient that makes its way. That's right. (laughs) Colors our world. And so this desire to spin our lived experience into creative self-expression, it can present a conundrum for creatives because our stories are not just our stories. Our stories often feature other people, parents, siblings, friends, people we've loved and lost to breakups or deaths. So how do we tell our version of events and represent those folks and our work? And further, how do we tell our stories in a way that doesn't scandalize innocent bystanders like our kids, our grandparents, our work colleagues, our fellow parishioners? So today, I'm titling my spark, Write Like Your Parents Are Dead. Oh, yes. To be clear, Write Like Your Parents Are Dead is not blanket advice that I'm doling out. We are not condoning this for everyone. I'm just being provocative. Um, It's not the (laughs) correct approach for all creatives all the time, but it is actually an option suggested by Anne Lamott in her wonderful book on writing Bird by Bird. And Mm -hmm. if you want to learn more about that book, we did an episode of the podcast on it a while back. Also, you, if you want to learn more about it, you should just go read it. It's an Mm -hmm. awesome book. It's amazing. In that book, Anne says, we write to expose the unexposed. 
If there is one door in the castle you have been told not to go through, you must. Otherwise, Mm. you'll just be rearranging furniture in rooms you've already been in. Mm. Most human beings are dedicated to keeping that one door shut. But the writer's job is to see what's behind it, to see the bleak, unspeakable stuff, and to turn the unspeakable into words, not just into any words, but if we can, into rhythm and blues. You can't do this without discovering your own true voice, and you can't find your true voice and peer behind the door and report honestly and clearly to us if your parents are reading over your shoulder. Mm -hmm. They are probably the ones who told you not to open that door in the first place. You can tell if they're there because a small voice will say, oh, whoops, don't say that. That's a secret. Or that's a bad word. Or don't tell anyone you jack off. They'll all start doing it. (laughs) So you have to breathe or pray or do therapy to send them away. Write as if your parents are dead. Those uh, are the words of Anne Lamott, Anne the Lamott. great, great Anne Lamott, and mm. and that is that is one person's POV, but it yep. is an informed point of view. It is That's the point right. of view of someone who has created extensively from their lived experience. Mm-hmm. But let's not just take Anne's word for it. Okay, okay. Mary Carr is best known for her three celebrated memoirs: The Liars Club, Cherry and lit. She's credited with helping turn the memoir into a popular literary form. She's also been teaching memoir writing for decades, decades at Syracuse University. So again, her opinion is very informed. Mm -hmm. And she has a wonderful book that I recently read at the suggestion of Uh Maida Wagner. Yes. Thank you, Maida Wagner. Yes. The book is called The Art of Memoir. And in it, Mary Carr asks the question, How do you write about people you love without betraying them? Mm. To begin to answer this, Mary Carr is as fastidious as possible about capturing the truth. In her class that she teaches at Syracuse University, early in the course, she actually, in the classroom, stages a fake fight between her and either another student or a teacher. And the students, like, it, she, it's totally, like, plotted out, uh-huh. and then they improvise this fight, and it sort of builds. First, there's, like, uh, calls that come in. It's, you should read the book. It's yeah, very interesting yeah, how yeah, she yeah. stages this, this fight that sort of creeps into the classroom. Mm-hmm. And the students in attendance don't know that they're seeing a fake fight. And after the fight, Mary Carr asks the observing students to document what they have seen. And the exercise is designed (laughs) to service the fact that depending on their lived experience, it colors what they have seen. Oh, good. Good one. Yes. Yes. They come to realize that they've gotten a little or a lot wrong, that they've projected their own experiences onto this stage fight. Mm -hmm. Carr says, it is humbling. And the takeaway is that it is your job to learn the shape of yourself and learn what you tend to project onto the landscape so you can kind of account for that tendency in yourself and question it as you're putting down your memories. Mm. Fascinating. And she says, it's interesting. Every once in a while, there'll be a student who has like an impeccable memory, almost like a photographic, Uh accurate, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Yeah. And, but it's rare. Wow. It's very rare. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I wonder, so, yeah, there's, I mean, I'm just thinking like, my God, if you ask me any story from pretty much any period, I, there'd be a lot of gray area that I'm filling in vaguely or fictionalizing it because yeah. I can't remember what actually happened in there. Yeah. 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 I can't recommend that book highly enough. I got it's, it because of Meta. But oh, I, yeah. but you read it faster. You are like quick <laughs> on the draw. Sparked it up faster, baby. Yeah. So there's so much good stuff in it. And let's unpack a little bit more of it. So Mary Carr actually has a whole chapter called Dealing with Beloveds on and off the page. Mm. And she acknowledges, and I want to underscore to you, Laura, and to everybody who's listening, there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to this. Mm -hmm. If you're making something that draws from your lived experience and includes, you know, beloved or not so beloved people that mm -hmm. are in your life currently or have been in your life. Mm -hmm. We're going to offer you some options here, but really you have to look into your heart and see what makes the most sense for you. Mm -hmm. Mary says, when writing about your life, methods for dealing with family and friends differ as radically as writers do. On one end sits memoirists, mostly women who interview and almost collaborate. On the other sits those with enough moxie not to give a rat's ass. <laughs> All men in her experience. Oh, wow. She says her friend Jerry Stahl, whose permanent midnight challenged family history by renaming his father's death a suicide, once oh. said, if you had to live through it, you get to write it, which I thought was super yes. interesting that, yes. that she has seen a whole dyad of, uh, of people, some who, and I actually relate to that deeply, yep. that, that impulse to interview and really collaborate and get buy-in mm. from people that may appear in mm -hmm. stories that I tell. Mm -hmm. And then there are people that just don't, they don't give a shit. And they're sort of like, Here's my version of events. I feel I feel a little on the other end. Now, Ooh. I haven't been brave enough to write all of the stuff that I intend to write, but I I what I have written have not passed by anyone else. Names have been changed, you know, so I haven't yep. I've not named anyone. But I'm sure there are some family members who would recognize themselves. But I've said to all of them, it is all heightened and fictionalized. So uh -huh. while you may have said this to me, it's a little better in the story if you said that to me. And, yeah. you know, and we have rolled with it thus far. Uh-huh. But I, I feel more, I guess, and also like in the fantasy version of me is more like one of those men that are like, listen, this is my perspective on this. You are free to write your story that shows your perspective on this. <laughs> yeah. And hey, let's have at it. Yeah. Because we yeah. each had different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. It's not for everybody, but yeah. I love it. Um, so that idea, Jerry Stahl's, if you had to live it, you get to write it. Mm -hmm. It brings to mind a few more things, some that we've discussed before, some are new, some worth revisiting. But it, it does remind me of my little credo. If you have to live through it, you might as well make something out of it. Uh -huh. It sort of feels like a little bit of a sibling to that. Yes. And it also reminds me of the Anne Lamott tweet that I've shared with you before. 
you own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories. If people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. That's right. I freaking, I love that. I love Anne Lamott and I love I that. I love that. And I feel like she's more on that end of the spectrum too. If like if you get to like, you get to write it. It's yours now. Yeah. That story's yours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to that point, and for a different perspective, I, I offer you Rosemary Wolf. Rosemary Wolf was the mother of two sons who grew up to be acclaimed memoirists. Two. What? Two. Two best-selling <laughs> memoirists. Tobias Wolf, who wrote yes. This Boy's Life, and Jeffrey Wolf, who wrote Duke of Deception. Those boys had harrowing childhoods. And at wrote the hands it, of Rosemary, the men that she married, oh, stepfathers, wow. and yeah. So Rosemary Wolf's response to her son's work: "If I'd known both my boys were going to be writers, I might have lived a little differently." Isn't which, that interesting? Which just proves Anne Lamott's theory: like That's if right. they wanted the story to turn out better, they would have behaved better. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I see a theme. Um, I see a theme, Suze. <laughs> According to Mary Carr's book on memoir, Rosemary Wolf got, in today's parlance, got dragged when those books came out. Like, like mm, you know, yeah. when those books were reviewed and talked about and becoming bestsellers, <laughs> she was not looked upon fondly. And at that point, she was this, like, prim-looking little old woman. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, just fascinating, fascinating. Um, it also reminds me of our recent spark on David Sedaris. As we know, David yeah. is another person who has written extensively <laughs> about his life, which of course includes loved ones. And while he has fun, funny, celebrated siblings that he loves to write about, it's not always a love fest. Mm -hmm. He has written very honestly about his sister Tiffany and her suicide. Mm. I can't remember if I talked about, remind me, I didn't go back and listen to the the spark that I did, but I don't remember how much I talked about this. I was very taken by this uh, in his masterclass. By the time his sister Tiffany took her own life, she and David had not spoken in five years. Oh, did, so why? this is news to you. Okay. I think well, so, she, but she also, was, you know, she had. She really struggled with mental illness. Mm -hmm. It sounds like she was, according to David, mm. she could be a challenging person to be around. And, oh my gosh, Camion, in his masterclass, he talks about how the very last time he saw her before she died was right before he was going to do a signing after one of his book readings. And she showed up at the open stage door, saw him, and called out to him, David, David. And in response, he told this employee of the theater who was taking care of him while he was there, could you close that door, please? <gasps> and that was the last time he saw his sister alive. Oh. Yeah. So this writing um. is not particularly flattering towards either of them. And even though he's known for being a humorist, he doesn't undercut it with a joke. It is authentic and true and very, very human. Susan, you just said something really interesting. And that is that, that you know, <laughs> when writing about other people in, in perhaps an unflattering light, 
I think it is also helpful to include some truths about you that Absolutely. are not seen in, in a totally flattering light. It's actually kind of boring to have like, I'm the perfect character in this piece and all these people are doing things to me that aren't nice. That's not actually a very interesting story. And David yeah. Sedaris is the best at being like, and you know, perhaps I was an asshole as well. He talks about that yeah. and he, he says like he gives it to himself. He mm -hmm. tries to give it to himself yeah. and hold himself to the highest level of scrutiny than anybody else that he writes about. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. works. That works for me. He says in that masterclass, uh, everyone has their secrets and I don't want to expose anyone's secrets. I don't want to make it hard for anybody. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Whenever I write about someone in my family, I give it to them first and I say, do you want me to change or get rid of it? And I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of what they would object to, but every now and then I'm taken by surprise and they say something like, I don't really want anyone to know that I used to wear glasses. You know, it can be <laughs> something small. And I say, okay, I'll take it out. I've had that experience. Laura, you know, uh -huh. we did a live podcast recording and I shared a story that I'd written about my mom and yes. I shared the story, the recording with her. And she was like, that there's that one sentence that I don't yeah. feel like is accurate. And I was like, it's gone. Mm -hmm. It's gone Take because it I, I personally want it to your earlier point about the gray area, the fuzzy area. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that I feel empowered as somebody who is including other real living, breathing human people in my stories. Mm -hmm. And even if they're no longer living and breathing, if they mm -hmm. once were, is I try to be absolutely impeccable with mm -hmm. the truth. Mm -hmm. Absolutely impeccable, including truths about myself that maybe aren't as flattering mm -hmm. to your earlier point. Mm -hmm. But if somebody's like, I don't think that's on the money or I just don't want it in the world. I'm like, it's mm -hmm. gone. But then you have that, do you the Laura Camions and the Jerry Stalls who are like, fuck it, if I lived it. Never let truth it. get in the way of a good story, <laughs> Suze. I don't know. I don't remember who said that. But um, but I think also uh, not uh, not too, it's not, it's not a small difference here that I'm about to say. It could be the difference of like using real names versus not using real names. Mm -hmm. So uh, that alone, you know, changes it changes it completely and i don't feel so inclined to be like is there anything about this that you would want changed because it's yeah. not them yeah you know? th that's right that's another way to handle it we'll talk mm -hmm. more about that in a minute um david sedaris did go on to say when i write about people i know i feel like i'm trying to celebrate them to the best of my ability i've written a lot about my mother over the years my mother died in 1992 she was 62 years old and i feel like my duty as a writer is to make everybody see how wonderful my mother was oh. i want people to see her the way i did and as a writer you have that power now if you've read david sedaris and you've read you know a lot about his mom it's it's she's funny she's dry mm -hmm. she drinks a lot it's not always <laughs> like 100 percent flattering but i can see what he means even like a little yeah. bit warts and all and you know even some of the shadow pieces yeah taken in its totality 
Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. I can get what he's saying. Mm-hmm. David Sedaris then does this thing. And again, I might have just included this in my recent spark about his masterclass, but please enjoy it again because I, I was so taken by this. <laughs> he addresses the question that he's often asked regarding what his family feels when he writes about them. And he does this by bringing his sister Lisa into the masterclass and they sit side by side on the stage huh. and she talks about what it's like. And I'll tell you, it's they're clearly very fond of each other. Yeah, yeah. He didn't suffer abuses, you know, it wasn't right. like, you know, but they're clearly very fond of each other. And I was going to say, and you get the sense that that is a family that laughs a lot and they laugh yeah. at themselves. They laugh at each yeah. other. And yeah. having that capability changes a lot he, too. And he talks in that masterclass, and I do think I shared this on the Spark I did recently. He talks about how he keeps a little notebook with him. And <laughs> one of the ways to bring humor into your writing is to write down funny things that funny people in your life say. <laughs> and he gets a lot of mileage out of that. So I think you're absolutely right. To hear them talk about it, it sounds like this dance that they do with each other, this negotiation. And he describes his sister, Lisa, as the type of person who effortlessly provides enough fodder for an essay. So, you know, it's <laughs> he wants to have her mm-hmm. as a source of inspiration in his life. Mm-hmm. But he, go, he does say, I don't want to run into somebody who I've said horrible things about in print. I don't want to have to worry when I walk into a room that there's somebody there angry. I don't like to write about people I don't like until they die. And I'm delighted when they die. I talked to somebody a while ago and they said, isn't it just awful when people are living? And I knew exactly what they meant. (laughs) But he does have a point. It does get easier. It does get easier if, you know, if your grandfather did terrible things to you, it's easier to write about granddad when granddad's not alive anymore. That is correct. That I mean, is correct. Yeah. Blessings. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yes, the conversation does get more nuanced. What happens when people in your world don't want you to write about them? Oh. So uh, David Sedaris talks about his longtime boyfriend, Hugh Hamrick, objecting to a story that David was writing for The New Yorker. And I watched this thing called BookTube, which is this show on YouTube where authors talk with a group of young creatives. And David said, I'm closing a story with The New Yorker right now, and it's about Hugh. And it's the first time he's ever kind of objected to an essay about him. And it is exactly Hugh. And everyone who knows Hugh (laughs) says, oh my God, that's Hugh exactly. (laughs) It's difficult when you're in a relationship because you think, okay, I want this story in the New Yorker. So I said to him, I'll give you all the money that they give me. It's a negotiation, but it wasn't what he looks like naked. It's that everyone who knows him knows that he can be really moody. And then at the same time, when I wrote the essay, I show how irritating I am. So that's to your earlier point, Carrie, about like, if you're going (laughs) to paint pictures of people, make sure you paint a real good one of yourself too. (laughs) But I was so fascinated by that resistance from, Mm -hmm. so you're on a deadline, the New Yorker, you know, so that is Uh a prestigious publication, that is money, that is, you know, it's it's all, all of that. And, you know, David wants that. I want it. He, yeah. he wants it. And he I wants that it. story. 
And I want that it. green light. Mm-hmm. But then I got the other side of the story, Hugh's side from a piece by Matthew Schneier on vulture.com. <laughs> what? Yes. So I, I did some research because I was like, I wonder if we get, I, and I found Hugh's side of the story. So <laughs> it's amazing. Like, and an I interview? also read that. Yeah. Oh my God. That's yes. awesome. And it's a significant interview because he is rarely interviewed. He rarely, he's like, David's the public figure. David yeah. can speak for both of us. He's the writer. Wow. And he did this interview on vulture.com and <laughs> Hugh describes sitting in the audience at one of David's readings when David read this piece Uh-oh. that he had never heard before the reading. And apparently Hugh often acts as an early reader for Sidaris's work, but this piece was new to him. Mm-hmm. And he said the woman behind him started gasping when David was talking about him and he was mortified. And he went up to David afterward and said, I don't want to hear that ever again. <gasps> dot, dot, dot. But anyway, it was published. So wow. there's a, yeah, there's, there's, you have to imagine fill in the blanks here, but you have to imagine that there was a lot of conversation that happened between, I don't want to hear that ever again, to it was published. And it's, it's, it's interesting to take in David Sedaris talking about it on BookTube, Hugh Hamrick talking about it with Vulture.com, and reading the New Yorker essay that was published. It's all available. Oh my gosh. So you get this sort of, you know, it's this sort of story arc about this story. What's the name of the piece? Do you know? The name of the piece in the New Yorker? Yeah. The name of the piece in the New Yorker is called Hurricane Season, and it was published in December of 2019. Love it. But it is an interesting sort of study of one writer's journey with this mm-hmm. writing about beloveds and uh, and this dance this negotiation but there's another one that i was taken by recently there's a moment do you remember this cams there's a moment in the documentary expecting amy in which amy schumer explores touring and developing her Netflix one-hour comedy special while going through a really tough pregnancy mm-hmm. with lots of hospitalization and complications. And parallel to all of that, in the documentary, Amy Schumer and her husband received the diagnosis that he is on the autism spectrum. So there is like a lot going on in yeah. their lives at this time. And this the documentary depicts really beautifully Amy developing a joke about how when Amy was hospitalized for five hours and receiving fluids via an IV, her husband and her sister passed the time while Amy was in the hospital by going to one of those paints and pottery places. (laughs) And her husband painted a portrait of Amy on a plate. And that picture that he made became probably the biggest like laugh in that entire stand-up special. (laughs) It became a punchline essentially. And it, it's, it gets this like huge laugh, this picture that uh-huh. he made for his wife. And while she told the story, Amy would talk about his recent diagnosis on the autism spectrum. And there's this scene where they're having this halting conversation around their kitchen island 
about this moment in her stand-up and what feelings it brings up and if it should be included. Do you remember this? Oh, I don't. I was, when I saw the documentary, I was like, here's the dance. Here's Mm -hmm. the dance of a creative person Mm -hmm. who is making work out of their own life. And they're not the only character in the story. That's right. A member, a, a beloved person close to them is included and it reveals things about that person. Well, when you feel like you're the punchline versus like I'm part of a funny story and I did something funny and I can laugh at it too versus I did something that wasn't intended to be funny and now it's a punchline or it's being laughed at. It feels, it can feel very different. Very different. And there's also, it's so, I went, Laura, I literally went back and I transcribed their discussion. I was so taken by it because I was like, it's like a, we were recently in our, in, in our creativity course, we brought in the great Greg Bonsignor who writes for film and television. And he was talking about this, how a a well-written scene is either a negotiation, a seduction or a fight. And I was watching that scene in that documentary and I was like, this is a fight and it becomes a negotiation and it becomes a seduction. It, it was fascinating because you could see her saying, I prioritize our marriage. And mm-hmm. if you tell me, you have to tell me, you have to tell me honestly, I feel like you've brought this up enough times yeah. that if you have something to say about how this makes you feel, you need to say you it. And it's me. so halting and the conversation sort of travels. It, it really does travel. Wow. But ultimately, Amy keeps the joke in and it gets the biggest laugh in her special. Wow. Yeah. And he comes to terms with it. He's okay with it. It doesn't hurt. Him. Well, there's another layer in here. I mean, this is her work and he says it. He does say during the course of that conversation, I'm so fascinated by it. He does say like, this is not something that everybody deals with every day. That's right. That this, we have our life, like our private life, and then you have your art and you have your work. And Mm -hmm. it's an unusual thing. It's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. I've often thought about my family and how strange it must be how challenging it must be knowing that you have somebody near you who makes work out of their lived experience and you yeah. might be featured in that and I how mean, that even would, the stories we tell on this podcast oh yeah i mean if we, you're yeah. if you're one of, if you're one of our if you're nathan my husband if you're mm-hmm. Wes, your partner if you're you know yeah. you never know when you're going to get name checked on this podcast <laughs> and you do give up a bit of control you know yeah but yeah. I do like to believe, I mean, I do, I check with Nathan and I say, Hey, is it okay if I mention this or that? I recently said to my mom, I, uh, you know, they had sort of a life event and I said, would you be okay if I talked about it on the podcast? And my mom said, let me just check. And mm-hmm. then I didn't hear anything. And I was like, I'm not going to talk about I that on the, the podcast. Yeah. I think I got the answer mm-hmm. and I respect it. So yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so it is an interesting. There's another facet to this that's occurring to me in real time, which is if you're 
Amy Schumer. I think Amy Schumer got, I don't know if the internet is telling the truth. It's hard to say, but at least $10 million for that stand-up special. Uh-huh. If you're David Sedaris, you, this is yeah. y'all's livelihood That's too. Right. So there's that added piece. That's right. I'm sure you, there's got to be some, a little bit of like, please suck it up because I, this yeah. is good material. Yeah. <laughs> I want to yeah. use it. Yeah. You like that chef's kitchen that you're cooking in? <laughs> that joke bought that chef's kitchen. It's, um, it's, it's an interesting thing that we ask of our, loved ones Mm -hmm. that, you know, Mm -hmm. or that we don't ask, depending on the approach that you take. If you're Jerry Stahl, maybe you're like, they can all go among themselves and all, I'm going to tell my version of events. Mm -hmm. Or Laura Camion, you saucy, (laughs) saucy. But just to transition a little bit, when you're creating from lived experience, as we all know, it's not always funny jokes. It's not always humor and jokes. So I just want to say, this is a little content warning, a little trigger warning. Mm Um, regarding sexual violence. Mm -hmm. So when Maya Angelou was on the Oprah Winfrey show several years ago, she told the story of how when she was seven and a half years old, she was raped by her mother's boyfriend, seven Mm. and a half years old. And in real life, after Maya told the name of the rapist, the man was arrested and then released. And two days later, that man was found dead. Maya was on the floor with her brother when the police came to tell the family that the man, Maya's rapist, was dead. And Maya's mother's mother was this very stern, very unemotional. And she asked the police how the man had died. And the police, in Maya's presence, said that they believed that the man was kicked to death. (gasps) And Maya Angelou heard that and thought, my voice killed that man. She thought her voice was so evil that if she Uh, put it out, it could kill anybody. uh, So Maya Angelou stopped speaking uh, and she didn't speak for five years. uh, Five years. Five years. uh, Because she believed what so many of us believe that if we are honest, mm-hmm. if we tell our stories, people might die, relationships will shatter, we or someone mm-hmm. else might burst into flames. Mm-hmm. And her family also chose to never speak of the incident again. So this little girl that didn't help. Yeah, was left mm-hmm. with withdrawn and depressed and in her oh, silence. My God. In this article by Elizabeth Street on LearningLiftoff.com, I learned that. Maya remained an avid reader. Maya loved literature. And a local teacher named Bertha Flowers helped her regain her voice. In Maya Angelou's autobiography, she recalled how the teacher praised Maya's reading, saying, your grandmother says you read a lot every chance you get. That's good, but not good enough. Words mean more than what is set down on paper. It takes the human voice to infuse them with shades of deeper meaning. And eventually, this teacher broke through Maya's (sighs) long silence by challenging her to read poetry aloud. So at age 13, 13. Oh, my gosh. Seven and a half Mm -hmm. to 13. With the encouragement of this teacher, 
Maya gradually began speaking again. And this teacher had her writing. And I've talked about this feeling before that I've had, I've had as a younger person that I had a cork in my throat. And it made it hard to speak, to tell the truth, to tell my story. But with time and with work and through therapy and the practice of self-expression, I have slowly dismantled Mm. this cork. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh man, Maya Angelou was uncorked. Maya Angelou went on to become one of the foremost Mm. memoirists of our time. She became, along with people like Richard Wright, she became, uh, I, I mean, she I mean, leads the way in terms of memoir. Angela. Yeah. She went Ooh. from being literally muted by her trauma to writing it into I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, the first of her seven book autobiographical series. It was instantly a bestseller and is her most critically acclaimed work. And this is all because Maya reclaimed her voice. Maya told her story, mm-hmm. and if she hadn't told that story, it would have been lost to all of us. Her teacher is a hero. Yes, Bertha Flowers, amazing. Thank you, Bertha. Like she gave us the gift of Maya Angelou. Now Maya yeah. had to do Maya had to do the work. Yeah, Maya had to have the courage, um, and she did, obviously. But thank God there was someone in her life that was like. I'm going to help you yeah. through this. It's, it, I, I wanted to share that story also because if you're listening to the sounds of our voices and you are thinking, I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly tell that Oof. story. I couldn't possibly implicate. I think about the stories that Richard Wright talks about in Black Boy and the story, the story yeah. I just told about Maya Angelou, yeah. I can Ugh. imagine it would feel unimaginable to tell that story. You know mm-hmm. what I'm feeling right now, Suze, is like how flippantly I said earlier, like, oh, no, I get to tell my part. You know, like I would just tell the story. But upon further reflection, I have not told some really, really dark stories. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't mean to be flippant about it because when it comes to you know, date rape or, or uh, sexual assault or things that have transpired. Like I would definitely find it difficult to name names and say, this is what happened because, well, because I do think about like, well, gosh, what if someone wrote in, like put in writing that I had done something that I didn't yeah. feel I had done. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's it's that's it's difficult. It's challenging, right? Mm-hmm. And the flip of it, I'll say this, Laura. Some of the things that I'm most afraid to write about mm-hmm. are things where I've done. That's right. Oh, well, of course, things that I'm deeply ashamed of. That's right. Yes, one hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's no joke. It's no joke. And I I just want to say for the record, I did not mean to make it sound like it's easy. I didn't mean to be flippant about it. I think it's all relative to what it is you're writing. And and the David Sedaris, you know, when you're writing funny stories, even yeah. though your family, you know, they might be slightly embarrassing, they're also humorous. And that's, it's very different than telling 
a darker truth. Well, just to use David and Sedaris as an example again, to tell the story honestly, that the last thing he ever said to his oh, sister gosh. before she committed suicide, the last interaction they ever had was, can you shut that door, please, to shut her out? Because, you oh, know, that yeah. is so... Painful. I really respect his um, bravery yeah. to be that honest about himself. Yeah. I want to share Mary Carr's rules. She literally has a list of rules for dealing with others when it comes to memoir. And I right. think it's worth sharing them. So let me share this list. Okay. And these are just Mary Carr's rules. These are some things to think about. Again, there is no one size fits all. So number one, Notify subjects way in advance, detailing parts that might make them wince. So far in her work, no one has ever winced. And as I said earlier, I've done this with my family and I have been amazed and surprised by their response and how much uh, green light and blessing I've received from them about, you know, including them as characters and things I've written. Mm -hmm. Number two. On pain of death, don't show pages to anybody mid-process. You want them to see your best work polished. So after that early, like, you know, checking in Heads with them up. or mm -hmm. notification, mm -hmm. then they don't see it until it is polished. Number three, if you write about somebody you hate, do it with great love. Oh, <laughs> Oh, I thought that was super interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I feel yes. like we have clients who are writing about some really, really <sighs> deep, challenging lived experiences at the hands of folks. Mm -hmm. And I think how interesting, even as a prompt, if you're writing about somebody you hate, do it with great love. I thought that was interesting. Number four, related to the above, I never speak with authority about how people feel or what their motives were. Uh -huh. I may guess at it, but I always let the reader know that's speculative. I keep the focus on my own innards. Fascinating. That's interesting and also seems specific to writing a memoir versus, say, a play or a screenplay yeah. where, yeah. you know, yeah. their yep. motivation is going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Number five, if somebody's opinion of what happened wholly opposes mine, I mention it in passing without feeling obliged to represent it. Hmm. Yeah, she speaks very specifically about like she has a pretty conservative sister. They mm -hmm. are they seem very, very different than each other. And, you know, she will represent that point of view in passing, but that's it. She doesn't Not feel obliged it. to yeah. Mm -hmm. Number six, don't use jargon to describe people. It's both disrespectful and bad writing. I never called my parents alcoholics. I showed myself pouring vodka down the sink. Give information in the form you received it. I thought that was really interesting. Oh, and that's just like good writing advice. That's just great writing advice yeah, for yeah. all mediums. Yeah. Show us, don't tell us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is to your point. Number seven, let your friends choose their pseudonyms. <laughs> in my work from here on out laura you get to choose your pseudonym <laughs> veronica charlie you get to decide number eight try to consider the whole time you're working how your views especially the harsh ones may be wrong correct mm. as needed mm -hmm. this is where i love some of these because not only like this one that i just said but also if you're writing about somebody you hate do it with great love mm -hmm. this is where the creative act not only is 
an act of self-expression, but it's also self-expansion, which I love. Yes. And it's also duality. Like it's yeah. just so much more interesting. It's just good writing advice. Yeah. Yeah. And good living advice. Mm -hmm. Number nine, with your closest compadres and touchy material, you might sit with them, same house or town, maybe not the same room, while they read pages that may be painful for them. So she talks about mm. flying to the city where her mom lived or where her sister lived, like giving them the pages and going into a different room or going back to your hotel mm -hmm. and like being close enough so that then you can like debrief mm -hmm. afterwards. Number 10, I'd cut anything that someone just flat out denies. Then again, in my family, all the worst stuff was long confessed to before I started writing the first tome. Wow. So again, I have done that with somebody's like, I don't think the facts square there. I'll just be like, then it's gone okay. because I, I, have made a choice to just be impeccable as, as impeccable as I can be because I know memory is fallible. But so is theirs. That's where, I, that's where yeah, I'm always yeah. like impeccable to whose memory there's you're, you're saying you would prefer to go by their memory just I, to be safe. Absolutely. That's, yeah. and again, this is not one size fits all. Yeah, yeah. It is so, it is so you have to decide my hope with this spark, what I wanted to do is just present you with options. Yeah. And you all have to think in your hearts, if, if you're interested in making yep. work out of lived experience, what is going to bring you peace? Yeah. And all of these, I love all of these, Suze. Like you're, you are offering fantastic options and they all have shades of gray. So yeah. exactly where on that spectrum someone wants to land uh, based on how they, how comfortable they feel, that's their yeah. answer. But it really, it really, what I just said about ultimately for me, mm -hmm. I need to be able ideally to be self-expressed, mm -hmm. but also be at peace. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to be self-expressed, but I am just like dropping bombs into my life, that doesn't sound peaceful to me. Like Not I want all. it to yeah. improve my life and if it's possible, improve my relationship with myself and with others, mm -hmm. not not just leave scorched earth in my wake. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, number 11, let the reader know how subjective your point of view is. This is in some way a form of respect to your subjects who might disagree. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing, it's not on her list, but she also talks, and I think this is super relevant. She talks about how, for instance, her son knows the truth about like the big facts of her life, but he doesn't read all the down and dirty details. So I'm going to add that to the list as well. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, use your judgment about what's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Like it's not probably the best idea to burden a, a kid with like the details of, for instance, like a sexual assault or, you know, right. Right. But, but if they can sort of know these things happened yeah, and, and they don't have to read that particular memoir, that particular chapter, I thought that was, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. good advice. Back to David Sedaris. He said, as an artist, the great rule is that there aren't any rules, but now there's so much talk about what's yours to write. Like, oh, that's not yours to write about. Mm. And David is like, yeah, it is. 
Mm. You know, there were people who were saying, you had no right to write about your sister's suicide. Well, I can't write about my own. Know what I mean? He said, when my last book came out, I did an interview with the New York Times and they said, well, you know, you said some things about your dad that are pretty rough. Did you share it with him? And David said, I thought he'd be dead by the time the book came out. I mean, he's 96. (laughs) It's a reasonable assumption, you know. (laughs) Which brings me back to the beginning. If it frees your self-expression, maybe try writing like your parents are dead. Mm. Or put more gently, write like your parents are never going to read it, or your kids Mm -hmm. or your spouse. Write honestly. Write like it will immediately Mm self-destruct. If you are inclined discuss it with people before or not, you get to decide. But I will say this, make these decisions consciously, because if you don't, your fears, which may be subconscious, may keep you from telling your story. And Lamott said, remember that you own what happened to you. If your childhood was less than ideal, you may have been raised thinking that if you told the truth about what really went on in your family, a long bony finger would emerge from (laughs) a cloud and point at you while a chilling voice thundered, we told you not to tell. Mm. But that was then. Just put down on paper everything you can remember now about your parents and siblings and relatives, and we will deal with the libel later on. Oh, yes. And that is my spark. Yes. There was something you said in there, Suze, that I wanted to expand upon when you said, if it frees your creative expression. And that's another thing that we often talk about with clients. You're not going to publish this first draft. That's right. If it frees you to write all of it in its messiest form without any reservation, as though your parents are dead, as though they're never going to read it, you can edit later, but let it out, get it out of the way. Yeah. I do think sometimes, I I think in my own life, I'll use myself as an example, things that I I couldn't have imagined freely talking about or writing about, I now just say in casual conversation Mm -hmm. because the shame of it has burned off. And, and as I grow and age and experience people in the world, I realize all sorts of folks have previous experiences with drug abuse, drug addiction, um, uh, you know, sexual abuse, sexual assault, name it. And it's so liberating for others when you are liberated and saying it. That's, that's it. So I'm sort of like those things that you think, oh, I couldn't possibly look to Maya Angelou look to Richard Wright, look mm-hmm. to these great mem- Tobias Wolf and Mary Carr and these great memoirists that have gone before us and take heart, mm-hmm. be brave, be brave. Yes. There's, uh, as I was preparing for this, I was also looking at like all different kinds of memoirists from around the world and from all different backgrounds. And there's a memoir about a journey from being an ultra-Orthodox rabbi to a transgender woman by Abby Stein. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Think about wow. the, 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 courage. the life lived yes. and then the bravery to tell the story yeah. and how liberating that will be for other people. Yeah. 
I love the name of Edie Windsor. If you're familiar with the life and times of Edie Windsor, the name of Edie Windsor's memoir is A Wild and Precious Life, borrowing from Mary Oliver. And another thing that I make of it, in addition to hopefully being even more brave about, you know, making stuff out of lived experience is something else I make of it is wanting to read more memoir. Yes. 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 Yeah. Because what it's like, it's akin to documentary. There is nothing to me that is more fascinating and wonderful than the details that lived experience provides. Yes. And when people are willing to talk about their failures, when they're willing to talk about the dark times that they went through, it can feel like a lifeline. It can literally feel like a hand reaching out from the book and grabbing you and saying, like, you're not alone. I survived that. From the outside, my life looks all glossy, but I survived these things. And then another thing, another, what do we make of it is I think about, you know, we have a client who sort of sparked, I I won't name names, but they sort of sparked uh, in part this whole thing. And, um, I'm so thankful for it. It's making me smile. But I know that (laughs) they're struggling with this right now Mm -hmm. because they're sort of like, ugh, my family. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's tricky when it's like, it's your story. That's right. But they're featured in it. That's right. And it's tricky. How do you write about it? But I also think you can put it into song. Mm -hmm. You You can speak very, very honestly and very in very self-expressed ways, you can do it in song. You can do it in poetry. Yeah, that doesn't name names, but that it gets correct. it up and out. That is so, correct. Yeah, yeah, yes. What a great spark, Sue! Oh, thanks, Cam. So Thank good. You. Shall we take so a little breaky okay, and continue the sparkage? Okay. The spark. That was a great spark. Oh, Amazing. thanks, Cam. Thank you. Great, great spark. I love. Oh, it. I thought of an. I thought of an update. What? For that, I should have put at the top of the show, but here we are now. Um, curated closet. Yes. Curated closet. I have been. I've continued to curate my closet. Nice. I I started. I took a whole day on Sunday, and I started at one end of the closet, and I tried on every <gasps> piece of clothing. Ah! And made a determination based on Anushka Reese's book of what would be donated, what would be sold, what would be altered, what would be painted, what would be cut up. Like I, um, I probably have gotten through about a third of what I need to do because it's it's slow work. Yeah, yeah. And you're not only like figuring out like, do I love this, but also does it work within the puzzle of the wardrobe, etc. But I'm I'm doing it and I can see already I can see a light at the end of the tunnel where when you reach for things in the closet you can just like put beautiful things together very easily and you feel great and it feels fun and it feels like an expression of yourself yeah I yeah I like it anyway there's an update for you I love it. The work continues. Anyway, um, you got a spark for for me? I've got a spark for you. And I I guess I should admit at the top, Suze, that I had an entirely different spark planned (gasps) for today. 
A discarded spark? Wow. Well, just set aside temporarily because something happened over the weekend that sparked me so much. It just kept distracting me as I tried to write that other spark. So I finally just thought like, well, shit. This one is taking up so much space in my mind. I should just put this down on paper. I should just get it up and out. So, yes. So, just a little bit of backstory, as you know, Suze, but for other people who don't know, in the Spark File Select Group Creativity Coaching Program, we sometimes bring in guest artists to lead a session in their area of expertise. And this week, as you mentioned in your Spark, we had the absolutely fantastic Gregory Bontignor join us and he ran a mock writer's room. Amazing. So we could all experience the creative collaboration and like this fast pace, pitching ideas, taking risks, failing, taking another risk. I mean, it was, it was incredible. We had so much fun. I learned so much. It was great. It was so amazing. It was so amazing. And Afterward, if you recall, you and Thomas and I, hi, Thomas, um, we had a conversation about like parallel lives. And I said, I really think that if I had had any exposure to a writer's room when I was younger, if I had known it was a thing, like I just would have thrown myself into it and learned everything that I could about it. Uh, Like in some parallel universe right now, there's another me. That's just loving working in a writer's room. Well, and I will say that you, that version of you shows up with our clients because you're really good at that sort of script analysis and story exploration. So I do think you work those muscles and I think you're onto something, but listen, you're not dead yet. I mean, I'm not dead yet. Yeah. But... I, that was just a taste of like, it just I could see joyful. that twinkle in your eye during that, the, during that session. I, I could just, see it. It's, it was so much fun. And in this mock writer's room, uh, this whole experience that Gregory took us through, he used the crown as the example of the show that we would be writing. So right. we all like, like, um, uh, what do you call like when you sort of play act like we were we were just um, behaving he as was though, the head writer he was the yes, showrunner we were breaking we the were, fifth season we were of playing the, Crown. the role of that's yeah, right. a team of writers who were breaking that fifth season that's right so that show is a perfect way to learn the process because the crown is about the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, who's currently the Queen of England and has been since 1940-something. And Uh so the events that take place are historically accurate to some degree with some creative license, but you can literally look them up. So if you need to know like what needs to happen this season, you can look them up. Um, and the seasons so far have all had like 10 episodes per season. They cover approximately a decade each. So we know the next season will cover the 1990s. Right. And since we all have some degree of all the characters, it's just such a super smart way to to approach this exercise. Yeah. It was really, really well done. <sighs> I mean, Yes. But in this same conversation after class, Suze, you said something. You said that you didn't know a lot about the royal family and that you didn't have much interest in it. 
And so we had a lively conversation after class about the monarchy and sort of what yeah. draws people to it and why yeah. all the traditions and the, the tired old rituals and regulations, et cetera. And it really sparked me afterwards, Suze, to just dig deeper into like why the royals are such a fascination for so many people. And OMG. <laughs> and like in particular, what like what aspects of it intrigue me personally? Oh I'm- my God, this is amazing. <laughs> I don't because know. Since that conversation, I have had a series of conversations where I'm like, what is it? And you're going to do a spark about it? <laughs> I'm going to do a spark Great. about it, Suze. Great. It may be your worst nightmare or it may be tons of fun for you. No, I don't I'm know. I'm so fascinated <laughs> by it. And partially because I feel so on the outside of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I was saying in that conversation, I was sort of like, it's all made up. All the pomp, the pageantry, the rules, it's mm. all made up. And you were saying, well, everything's made up. Everything's made I up. I mean, like, yeah. Theater, there's, there's religion. A, I mean, it's all. There's a lot of yeah. comfort that people take in the, you know, the consistency mm-hmm. of those rules. But Guess what? Like, We're going to get into it. Get into it, yes! girls. Dig in. Okay. So for me, Suze, I don't feel obsessed with the family per se, but as it relates to history, I mean, in that sense, I. Like, I can't get enough of it. You do uh, love history. So, I mean, half of Shakespeare's writings are about kings and queens. And when royals ruled instead of government, you really saw the range of human emotion, human ambition, human nature on display when you study the royal court. So, it is absolutely perfect for theater. Yeah, absolutely perfect. There are parallels it's in business, per- per- television, film, yes. business, business. In, yes, yes, in yes. Any social circle, any yeah. power dynamics. You know, if you want to study those things, you want to study the royal court. I mean, if you're a fan of Succession, the TV show, which, by the way, Susan guest starred on. Okay, easy, I mean, everybody. it's a different kingdom, but the same dynamics yeah. are at yeah. play. That's why they call it succession. So I think for me, you can't really separate an interest in a country or a group of people from your interest in their government. You might not be into politics, but if you have any interest in history and understanding context, what happened in different periods of time, why it happened, you have to understand who was in power, how they got to power, how they ruled, because that affects everything else from from like what inventions were created and promoted, what mm. scientific discoveries happened, mm. the exploration and mapping of the world, all the way to the specifics of the day-to-day lives of people who lived there. So let's dig into the whole shebang, shall we? Okay. This is, again, this is going to be like the tip of the iceberg. But let's do a little, like, just a backstory about monarchies in general. Okay. First of all, England, as I'm sure you know, is hardly the only country with a monarchy. Sure. Others you may have heard of, the Kingdom of Morocco, the Kingdom of Cambodia, the Imperial House of Japan. Currently, there are around 45 countries in the world with a monarchy right now, Uh, in the year 2021. 
Do you mean that the monarchy is the the ruling government? Why no? I have two different two different types of monarchies to tell you about today. Number one, Suze, there are absolute monarchies, and there are still a few of those. That is when a single person holds absolute power. That is an absolute monarchy. Typically, that person is born into the role. The power is passed from one family member to another through generations. Current absolute monarchies include Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, for example. The Vatican City is also an absolute monarchy with the Pope as the head. Now, I see that you look inquisitive. Did you know Because it's, Vatican it's not City, a bloodline. It's not a bloodline thing. It's not like you're born into it, but you do get sort of that is selected. And, uh, got it. It's okay. an example of an absolute monarchy where the power is not hereditary. It is handed, it's not handed down among family members, but it is determined by the church. Got it. But it's absolute. What the Pope says goes. I'm following you. You're this tracking. makes sense so far. Okay. Yes. Okay. And I'm fascinated by the concept that such powerful forces are still absolute monarchies. That is correct. That they still exist. And there's absolute still monarchy would be a great name for a line of genes. Absolutely. Sorry, monarchy. go ahead. Okay. Well, besides the great line of genes, absolute monarchy is a form of governing that goes back all the way to the Middle Ages, which is around the 500s, like okay. the year 500s. And it really hit its peak in Europe at least by the 16th century. It's really epitomized by King Louis XIV of France. He was fond of saying, I am the state because nothing that an absolute wow. monarch does that can be questioned. charming at parties, right? <laughs> I am the state. Jesus. Nothing they do can be questioned or limited by written law, the court, religion, any sort of electoral process. They are truly untouchable. How'd that turn out for Louis the Fourteenth? Well, I don't know. Well, I mean, a lot of them, I mean, we, this went on for thousands, like at least a thousand years. So not all of them did it turn out poorly for. Does that make sense? Wow. Yeah. So um, the reason they're untouchable is because of an ancient theory known as the divine right of kings, which asserts that the authority of kings was bestowed on them by God. Yeah. Super convenient because they can behave any way they want. They can treat people however brutally they want. And then if anyone attempts to conspire against them or disobey or tries to limit their power in any way, that person can be accused of, an affront to the will of God. Wow. So you dare question God, basically. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. So in England, which I'll focus on for the majority of this spark, because there's just too much, but the British monarchy held a lot of power and authority, but that power has been challenged many times throughout history. Essentially, like people would rise up or frankly, other nobles would rise up and say, hey, 
you could spread that wealth a little bit, like you could share that power with us. And the most successful challenge to the power of the monarchy came under King John in the year 1215, when he signed a document called, what? The Magna Carta. Does that oh, ring a bell? I've heard of that. That's my competing line of jeans, uh-huh. Magna Carta jeans. Magna Carta jeans. <laughs> now available at Target. That's right. The Magna Carta. Okay. So okay. that rings so, a bell, which is good. So down, will you remind me because it's been a minute? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. Thank you. Thank you. So in 1215, King John was facing down like a rebellion by the country's powerful barons. They were unhappy about taxation and other things. So they Mm -hmm. put so much pressure on him that he agreed to sign a document that would actually not only limit his power, but limit the power of all future sovereigns. So, like, he fucked everybody when he signed <laughs> He this. fucked everybody who came after him. Everybody down the line. So I also have to, I just want to pause for a second and say, I'm so thankful for you, the way that you just, like, like, the way you help just, like, spook. Like, it's like <laughs> you're feeding a baby bird with a little eyedropper. And you're just like, I can make history relatable and fun for you, Susan. I history can make it go in fun. your brain. I love it. So, so the Magna Great. Carta, was it King John? King John. Yep. He signed it under duress mm-hmm. saying, okay, uh, okay. Pressure uh, yeah. from the Richies. Yes, pressure from the yes, Richies. Yes. So, So the Magna Carta would limit his power and now he had to play by the rules of law. And this document like evolved over the years, but the foundation of it served as um, the foundation for common law, the English system of common law. And the reason we know its name is because the founding fathers and mothers of America would point to the Magna Carta as a historical precedent for asserting their liberty from England and the English crown. So you might say the Magna Carta was the beginning of the end of absolute monarchy. It, it started a process that eventually uh, limited the British monarch's power, like from then on. So from 1215 to now, it's just been lessening. Right. I mean, great. I mean, great. (laughs) Seriously, thank you, King John. Good job, King John. (laughs) Even though probably a lot of people were pissed. I mean, not a lot of people. The kings that came after him were pissed. Yeah, for sure. Um, But back in the 1200s, that powerful group of barons and religious figures and feudal lords that pressured him to sign that um, eventually evolved into parliament. So they sort of became a governing body. Okay. Okay. So Parliament took on a greater and greater role in governing the people. Wig sales through the roof. Absolutely. Yep. yep. But at first, the amount of power that Parliament had really depended on the monarch and how much they needed or didn't need the Parliament's support. So there Mm. were some kings who like utilized the Parliament, some who appeased Parliament, but then along came a little bastard in King Charles I. Things got so bad between the monarchy and parliament. This is in 1642, so we've cut ahead a while. 
uh-huh. a civil war broke out and some people backed the monarchy and some people backed parliament. Wow. He had like dissolved parliament several times until he finally just decided wow. he was going to just rule without them entirely. Why does that mm. sound familiar? Mm -hmm. um, but that didn't go over very well. So Oliver Cromwell led the parliamentarians, waged a war against the king and the king's royal forces. Eventually, mm. this is where things get twisted. This is just the kind of stuff that happens when you have a monarchy. Eventually, King Charles surrendered. He was forced to appear in court. The court was presided over by his enemies, and they convicted oh. the king of treason, and they beheaded him. Whoa! You know what is fascinating about all of this? What? The king would have an organized military. That is correct. Like a well-established organized military. But Oliver Cromwell successfully that is correct a war, which means you got to like cobble together. He had to cobble together, but I also think he went like to Scotland and got Scotland uh, to fight as well. Like I think you have friends. to get creative. Yeah, you yeah. have to really call in your, your people. Friends. You have to basically think. I don't know if they were friends, but you have to think who else is Charles's enemy. <laughs> so who else might might want to see Charles out? And so you're enemy becomes, you know, your common enemy becomes your friend. This is the thing, this sort of models to me, the like, the slow change, like in our government, when we get pulled to the left, and then the response is, we're, we're going to get pulled all the way to the right. And then we're going to try to pull it back to the left. Like every time we change, does that make sense? Yeah. So, so listen, Charles surrendered, was went to court, was convicted of treason and they beheaded him. They abolished the monarchy altogether and they determined that parliament would rule without a monarch. So now we've swung the other way. Wow. And this is 16, what'd you 46. say? 1646, this is happening. But we know that, you know, there were more little kings and queens that came along. That so. is correct. So more happened here. So we had... King Charles determined to rule without parliament. Mm -hmm. They take him down, fight him, mm. behead him. Mm. And now parliament decides to rule without a monarch. So mm. Oliver Cromwell takes control of the Commonwealth. And when he died, his son took over for him. Old grudges die hard. So at the wow. very first opportunity, the royalists restored the monarchy crowned King Charles's son, King Charles II, and they promptly convicted Oliver Cromwell of treason. Just so oh. happens he had already died. They didn't care. They dug his body out of oh. his tomb in Westminster mm -hmm. Abbey and hung it from the gallows. Oh. These are the brutal grudges and the stakes are life oh. or death. It's high oh. drama all the time. It is so soapy. I mean, it's still soapy. Like it is still like the the turns and the twists and the the power and the the shifts. But it's these just people they put their life on the line when they believed in something. Either you, yeah. if you believe in governing one way or another, 
Yeah. So fun fact, little sidebar, that little blip of time in the 1600s was the only break in the British monarchy since the Middle Ages. Wow. Because of it, Britain does not have the oldest consecutive line of royal rulers. Ah. That honor goes to the Imperial House of Japan. The Imperial House of Japan was founded in the year 600, 660, I think. And the emperor, and occasionally empress, were considered divine beings until after World War II, which is pretty fucking recent if you think about it. It sure is. And only at that point was the role made a symbol of the state. So they stopped being considered a divine being, but they are rather a symbol of the state. Wow. So, Suze, many, many monarchies, like the British monarchy, transformed over time from an absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy. In oh. a constitutional monarchy, as it might, as it sounds, the power shared between the monarch and a constitutionally defined government. So the king and queen mm. do not have unlimited power. They separate mm. the duties. They're figureheads. They're yeah, yeah, and some of them actually have some real duties, and some of them don't. So you said duty, aha, <laughs> uh-huh, duty. So now, in places like the UK, Sweden, Japan, and Spain, the monarch serves mainly as this ceremonial and inspirational role. Now here, you might think, and I know this because we talked on Saturday, (laughs) if they're just figureheads, what is the point? Well, for one thing, it can create a feeling of continuity and stability, whereas the prime minister, like our president, can change every few years. The monarch can stay in place for decades, even like ceremoniously presiding over a country for generations, like Queen Elizabeth, who's now the fourth longest ruler in history, it can feel safe to have some consistency and it can be a symbol of national identity and Mm -hmm. pride. Mm -hmm. There's also psychological evidence. This is what we started to get into. There's psychological evidence that because humans are a social species, it is traditions that bring us together there can be a real comfort in continuing ceremony and traditions over decades, over centuries. It strengthens our bonds to each other and can bring comfort to us. In an article in Bustle by J.R. Thorpe, humans love predictability and stability. We love it so much that up to 93% of all our actions can be predicted ahead of time, according to a 2010 study from Northwestern. The like clockwork stability of certain bits of life are, according to psychology, really necessary for our development and feelings of well-being. A little bit of routine can be a good thing, particularly when we're children and teens. Instability can really upend a kid's future life. This is where I think it gets really interesting, Suze. America doesn't have any sense of traditions that go back for centuries. Right. Zero. Nothing in our culture has been around more than a few hundred years. We've been taught from day one, modernize, modernize, modernize. There is nothing better than the newest, latest, greatest. We will drop a tradition so fast for the latest craze just because we've been taught that newer is better. We aren't taught to appreciate old things or traditions. It's just not in our bones. 
And there was for the indigenous people who lived here, you know, Susan generations before we destroyed their traditions too. That is correct. Literally the next thing that I was about to say is that when we colonized, we wiped out the traditions that existed on this land for centuries. Mm. We're going to get back to that in a minute. In Europe, you have buildings that are a thousand years old. Yeah. You have 800 year old buildings. There yeah. are buildings that have existed four times longer than our country has. Yeah. So I think that's one reason why I feel like so nerdy and passionate about studying and learning about the monarchies because we as a country haven't been around long enough to understand the ways in which people gain power, corrupt power. Our founding mothers and fathers had, though, and they tried to protect us against what they knew could happen via the Constitution. So when we disregard, say, the emoluments clause, we are literally disregarding the hundreds of years of knowledge they collectively had, the experiences they had with corrupt monarchies and governments, which they tried to safeguard us from. They might Mm. not have known what kind of technology we'd have, but Mm -hmm. they knew the human inclination for power. They understood what governments can do to each other and that there are no limits to the pursuit of power. Mm. So speaking of no limits to the desire for power, we cannot talk about monarchies without talking about colonization. Mm. Queen Elizabeth I was instrumental in setting up the British slave trade in the 1600s. Now, by 2018, Prince Charles denounced Britain's role in the slave trade and called it an atrocity. But wow, that seems like a long time coming. A really fucking long time, far too long. 2018? I mean, come on. Yeah. So there's many people who have pointed out that the current royal family, as well as many generations prior to them, have a great deal of wealth acquired from slavery. Yeah. Now, as we know, Britain is not the only country to engage in slavery. There are many who are guilty. But as it relates to the monarchy, the quest for power in Britain was pretty intense. Beginning somewhere in the late 1400s, Britain started to apply their laws and claim themselves the ruler of lands beyond their borders in a process called imperialism. They began by establishing colonies. This was mainly about money, Suze. It's money. It's money. Because they could control trade posts around the world. They could control Mm -hmm. the buying and selling of goods. They could tax more people. Natural resources. Yeah. Yes. Many historians claim that in doing so, the British Empire stripped many indigenous peoples of their land and vibrant cultures. For example, the Aboriginal in Australia and the indigenous peoples of the United States. You may have heard the phrase, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Right. Or more accurately, that the British Empire is the empire on which the sun never sets. That is because between the 18th century and the 20th century, roughly one-fourth of the Earth's landmass was controlled by Britain. Wow. 25% of the Earth was 
part of the British Empire. It was more than 412 million people. It was so vast that there was always daylight somewhere on one of their Uh, territories. Until when? Until up till 1913. Wow. Actually, it started to... It, it stayed longer until like 1940s, but I'll get to that. But at least in 1913, it was 25% of the alert wow. landmass. Wow. Consider this. There are almost 200 current member states of the United Nation. Of those 200, the British have at one point in history or another invaded and established a military presence. In how many of them, Suze? 171 of those countries. Out of 200 countries. So Britain obviously got greedy. They got, they saw what they, what they could do. They're not the only country guilty of running with imperialism. You've heard the phrase American imperialism. I'm sure Mm -hmm. that -hmm. phrase came about in the 19th century. Thanks to America's industrialism and the need to find other markets to trade our goods. Again, money. Always follow the money. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to that driving force, we sent our military to various countries. We've taken over and destroyed cultures as well. This is not unique to America and isn't, it isn't new. It's just sad that we're not able to learn from thousands of years of history and make a different choice. I understand all of it. Awesome. Which is quite an accomplishment. <laughs> so back to the British. The British Empire began to contract after the First and Second World Wars. Again, are you kidding me? With this is only this is less than a hundred years it's ago. So recent, yeah. Basically, during those wars, they were simply stretched too thin. I mean, think mm. about when you have an empire that big well, and you're trying to protect right. all of it. Yeah. So after the Second World War, that's interesting for those countries who did not want to be part of the Commonwealth as it is called, they saw an opportunity to find their freedom, either peacefully or violently. Mm. I believe you're familiar with Gandhi. I'm familiar with his work. You are familiar with his work. Then you know that in 1947, he led a nonviolent civil disobedience campaign for India to become independent of England. Mm -hmm. And it succeeded. That's 1947. And because of that, many other countries followed, some of them peacefully, some of them not. But 1947, like our parents were born. Our parents were born when the, the British Empire started to contract. So at this point, not much remains of the British Empire, but there are still a few territories, mostly like small islands like Bermuda, the Falkland Islands. And there are a few other countries that still have Queen Elizabeth as their head of state, including New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. Which leads us back to why? Why? The fact is there are many people, there are younger generations who really question, why do we even have these people? Yeah, yeah. In the United States, you have to remember, the royals are literally why our founding mothers and fathers left England. They are why we broke off and formed our own country. We wanted to be able to govern ourselves, religious freedom, not be taxed without representation, all of it. We've been taught from birth that we are here to be individuals. We are self-made over here. 
meaning it didn't get handed to us. No silver spoons in our mouths. This long-standing legacy of American individualism and ruggedness has a profound impact on our psyche. And let's look at patriarchy. The monarchs did not invent it. It dates back even further, but they certainly embraced it. The desire to have a male-gendered child was everything. And everything went to the male child. Women who were not able to have a male baby were killed, were tossed aside, cast out from court. Susan, it wasn't until 10 years ago that the British monarchy declared that the firstborn child, regardless of gender, would be next in line to the throne. That was 2011. And that was only because William and Kate were pregnant and they before they knew whether it was a girl or a boy, they wanted to be sure. And then let's look at racism, shall we? There's no denying it. There's no accepting it. And the monarchy should certainly not be celebrated for it. In an article on Medium by Ernest Denjamba Inebi titled, Stop Normalizing the British Monarchy, which Mm. came out around the time that Harry and Meghan were getting married. Yeah. His point is that celebrating the royal wedding is not as harmless as you might think, in particular for, as he says, black and brown people. He says a group that has been through slavery, colonization, war, starvation, dictatorship, pillaging of natural resources and artifacts, torture, genocide, political destabilization, election meddling, and instead of apologies and reparations were asked to thank and reimburse colonizers on their departure. A group which is consistently told to forgive and forget and think ahead instead of dwelling on the past. A group Uh. miseducated to internalize our own oppression, to believe that we just need to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and everything will be okay. Taught to think that light skin is better, smarter, and more beautiful, while dark skin is ugly, aggressive, rough around the edges, and dangerous. Taught that our traditions and religions are demonic and primitive, while theirs are sacred and sophisticated. Trained to accept white as trustworthy and black as corrupt. Conditioned to believe that our traditional weddings are just a preamble to the more legitimate white wedding. Yes. I mean, yes. He's not wrong about any of that. That is where I'm sort of like all of this. That's Look right. what Kate was wearing That's at right. the wedding. I'm like, who gives a fuck? That's this right. is this has real consequence and damage associated with it. That is correct. There is real reason to question all of it. They do yeah. not represent the ideals we claim to want for our world right now. And there is a real argument to be made that they need to quickly adapt to reflect the values of the world today if the monarchy is going to survive. It has been abolished before and it could be abolished again. For me, please make no mistake, like my fascination with traditions and rituals and the history of all of it is not devotion and worship. The British Empire, the Spanish conquest, the Roman emperors, these are not monarchies to be celebrated absolutely and completely but i do think they are things to learn from greed and power i tell you yeah greed and power i mean wouldn't it be great if we could proudly say that our democracy is proven to keep us from this tyrannical rule of a dictator Mm. Mm. 
But recent mm. years have shown us where our own government is weak and susceptible mm. to someone who might want to rule more absolutely. I just think we have so much to learn. I think we have so much to learn. Yeah, yeah. So the question still persists, why do people, even those who have been directly harmed by the monarchy, still celebrate it? Most psychologists believe it has to do with fairy tales. In an article in Time magazine by Jamie Dumarsh, Dr. Frank Farley argues that the royals, by virtue of their inherited status, stand in opposition to self-made American values. He says there's something alluring about following the lives of a family that make it look easy. Life is hard and becoming a success is difficult, he says. Look at these people. They inherited wealth and social influence and style and fame, and they live this fairy tale life in castles, all the stuff we grow up on. I mean, Disney, frankly, plays no small part in the fascination. It's true. And I feel like it's another phenomenal example of, well, you just said it, where this, because of storytelling. Yes. Storytelling. And this is where it's sort of like the power of storytelling, which can be used for the powers of good, or it can be used for the powers of not just evil, but also like subterfuge and distraction. And look at this beautiful, shiny thing. And meanwhile, it, it tricks people into voting against, against their best interests. Their own best interests. Yeah. It's It's, so true. Yeah. It's so true. And I, I think that other people might cite this basic need for escape because life can be hard and sometimes fantasizing about living a life of ease and decadence is very tempting and Disney and everyone else, like it, they're more than happy to provide these stories for us. But recently Meghan Markle, Diana Spencer have given us a glimpse into the possibility that everything is not as easy as it seems in the Royal family. Mm. Those are two <laughs> entirely different sparks. Um, yes. But but I think the veneer is starting to crack. And part of that is thanks. Thank you, Oprah Winfrey, you know, for, for you know, getting some interviews and getting some honesty, some conversation around it. So it could maybe show us, again, I, I'm not advocating that we need to destroy Um, the monarchy, I think we need to learn from it. And I mean, the history of the monarchy is the history of the world, frankly. Yeah, it's, it's, um, well, it certainly is a significant piece of it. It reminds me of, I think I said this on the podcast, I know I've said it to you in just in life. But Linda Berry says that thing about, we love celebrity because for it's That's like right. dollies for grownups. That's right. Where it's sort of like when you're little, you can be like, and you and I kiss you and I'm mad at you now. That's and right. so when we see like Jennifer Aniston and Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, like break up, split and back together on the cover of some tabloid in the grocery store, they're living out these soap opera stories yeah. or they're they're using Photoshop and fabrication to create these stories. But I do think that for some people, they have bought into the Royals and all of that 
as it's almost like celebrity entertainment. It is. It's a fantasy. And then those stories can get told and made up and told by the tabloids, by the media. And we, who knows? And also people can be fascinated by, oh, what the shoes that she wore and that's right how what her hair looked like when she you know appeared for the first time after giving birth and stuff like that and it detaches it from these traumas that you just described that these folks have inflicted on that is correct whole cultures entire cultures yeah, yeah for thousands of years yeah. I mean, I think that's where I get where I'm sort of like, I'm, that's where some of my disinterest comes because I'm just like, you have got to fuck right off. But I do think you're right that we have to look at it and learn from it, but in a, in a, in a deeper, more honest way. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, then, 100%. oh my God, that amazing Philip Tracy hat and that princess so and so was wearing. And you just yeah, think about that again. Like that, it's only been it's been less than a hundred years um, since they were as powerful as they were. But again, we're only talking about Britain. Where there's there's monarchies yeah. all around the world yeah. who are oh yeah who are controlling people's lives, and some are behaving in a magnanimous way, and some are not. Yeah. Um, Oh, it's fascinating. But I think about like, so what do we make of this? Good Lord. In the <laughs> in studying the monarchy, you literally are studying human nature, power, betrayal. You have absolute love stories. You have cautionary tales. You have tragedy. You yeah. have comedy. You learn the history of the world. So many works of art have been inspired by royal stories. I'll name just a, just a few. Six, returning to Broadway this fall, is about the six <laughs> wives yeah. of Henry VIII, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. I mean, these are six women with fascinating stories to tell, but we've only learned about Henry VIII. So it's so exciting to get more information on who are these six women who typically play just a supporting role in his, you know, yeah. in his yeah. mad madhouse, basically. Um, in fact, one of our dear clients, Michael Rowdy, has a show, The King's Legacy, dedicated to the story of Anne Boleyn. And frankly, yeah. she deserves it. Anne was the second of his wives and the first to be beheaded. The BBC has a new drama out about Anne Boleyn, played by Jodie Turner-Smith, who is not only an incredible actor, but a woman of color. Super exciting wow. to... Yes, to imagine Anne Boleyn, you know, in a in a more prominent way. Again, like it's time for these women's stories to be told as their own stories and not just Mm. in the shadow of, of um, Henry VIII. Wolf Mm. Hall. I don't know if you ever saw that. Mark Rylands, Damian Lewis. You're not the first person to say that. I think I am because I think I'm the first and the second. Cause last week, I think I told you about it. And I think you're remembering me. You're right. You You are the first and the second, the the fifth. (laughs) Yes, Wolf Hall. Now and forever. And you thought maybe Nathan would like it, and I think I think he would. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's also Henry VIII. Um, There's really no shortage of Henry VIII stuff out there. Endless fascination with him. 
we have Kate Blanchett played Elizabeth, uh, Queen Elizabeth yeah. I in two different movies, both fantastic, yeah. both feature the queen in different stages in her life. Olivia Coleman in The Favorite, she played Queen Anne. We've got The King's Speech. These are just British monarchs. Again, they're yeah. all over the world and many cultures. There will literally never be an end to the stories that you can tell. You can dive into like obscure and little known stories. You can take the well-known stories and add your own spin on them. Truly, I mean, for theatricality, you really like look no further. There's just thousands upon thousands and thousands of stories to be told and ones that can reflect on the world we're living right now to help us learn about how we could be doing things differently. Yeah. For me, I have my own personal story of meeting Queen Elizabeth II. And forgive me. Uh Forgive me. I thought maybe I told you this already, Suze. But Um, tell Nana again. I'll tell you again, Nana. So we were in London opening a Blue Man Group show around 2005 or 2006, I think. And we were invited to perform at the Royal Variety Show, which is a show Mm. that happens annually for the Queen and the Royal Family. And so the night of the show, I was with a group of people and I was in the lobby when the queen made her entrance, like cascading down this stunning staircase. And Suze, I am telling you, she was luminescent. She was Mm. beautiful. I think she was probably 60 at the time, but just stunning and so poised. I stared up at her. And for a moment, we locked eyes. I mean, she like looked right at me, probably right through me. But I was like, oh my God, we're having a moment. And it felt magical. It really did. And immediately I looked to my right and to my left to see if anyone saw that I just had this magical moment with the with the queen, that we had this connection. But of course, no one saw it, Suze, because they all had their heads bowed as we were (gasps) supposed to do, (laughs) but not me. I was that disobedient American with my big smiling face looking right up at her. Good. So of course she looked at me. And when I realized, like I look back on that and I laugh because I'm like, of course. Accidentally subversive. I, I had not it. been taught that I need to bow to someone. I had not been taught that I need to, you know, show deference to someone that I do not know, someone whose family has done some great things and some decidedly not great things. Yeah. I have been taught to meet that person eye to eye as a fellow human being. And I think I'm good with that. I love it because what? Nobody's above me. Nobody's, Nobody's below, below me. me. Monarchies to the Monarchies left. Monarchies to the left. Oh, wow. Canyon. Yeah. That was fascinating. And I do, I really do appreciate the, just the tender care <laughs> that you take in helping me to absorb some of this history because it's not always the easiest for me. And I love knowing more about this, especially given the conversations that we've been having. And it really just, 
it only clarifies and reinforces the the feelings that I already had. Oh, I mean, I think you're you're spot on, and you're right to think all the things that you think. Um, I I'm like, oh my gosh, like there's a million actual royal stories that are fascinating. Um, and that would have been fun. Like I could have been sparked by uh, like a hundred, like a hundred, a hundred of them. But yeah. I was like, our conversation on Saturday was really more like, but what is it? And why is it? And why does it still exist? And so yeah. I thought I would dig into that a little bit more. And I learned some things researching it. I appreciate it so much. And it's just right on time. Good sparking. Oh, well. And it makes me want to say this very clearly. This episode of The Spark File was made on Muncie, Lenape, and Seminole land. Yes! Yes, it was. And as always, we hope this put another bunch of sparks in your file. Listen, if there's a spark you'd like us to explore, or if you've taken a spark and fanned it into a creative flame and you'd like to share that, email us at thesparkfile at gmail.com or submit it through our website, thesparkfile.com. You know what? We will even take your feedback, but you know the price of admission. First, you got to share a creative risk that you have taken recently. You can follow us on social media at The Spark File and be sure to subscribe, rate, and five-star review this podcast. It really does help other listeners find it us. Does. If you If you like this podcast, we do hope that you'll share it with people that you love. And if you didn't like it, you can keep it to yourself or off with your head. <laughs> If something tickles your fancy and gets your creative juices flowing, we are writing you a forever permission slip to make that thing that's been knocking at your door. It's your turn to take a spark and fan it into a flame. You got to take it and, and make, it. make it. Bye. Bye. You are my queen. Oh. Thank you, Susan. When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my spark files. Could be something that I want to make or how I want to be. I pump it in my spark files. I jump into my spark files. Let's open up the spark files. Hi friends, it's Susan Blackwell from The Spark File, your one-stop shop for creativity where our doors are open. And if you smell something delicious, that's because Laura Camion and I have been cooking up something special, something designed to make a big difference in people's creative lives. Enter The Brave Creative, a free five-day guided adventure to rediscover the vitality energy, and possibility in your creative process. Whether you're a writer, a performer, a baker, a candlestick maker, navigating the creative process can be a bear. But never fear, there's power in numbers at the Spark File. So let's link arms and make the trip together. It's May 13th through 17th, 7 p.m. Eastern, less than one hour per day. And if you can't join live, don't worry about it. You can watch the replay. Join us by going to thesparkfile.com to register. And hey, if you're not familiar with The Spark File, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Secondly, we work with hundreds of creatives of all different kinds who are ready to take their next big step. 
We help folks fear less and create more in a community that is so fun and vibrant. And if you have joined us before, know that we are going deep with the Brave Creative. So buckle up, Buttercup. It is going to be an awesome adventure. Go to thesparkfile.com to register, but do it soon because it all starts May 13th. thesparkfile.com. Register now. Register now.